What's up, everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you for being with me here today. My name is Matt, and if you like the show, you can help me out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also leave me a review wherever you listen to this podcast, and that would also help me out quite a bit. So again, I'm uh, glad to be back and appreciate everybody's attention today. And we have an extensive show ahead of us, so I'm going to talk about a variety of different things. First, I'm going to touch on some latest biotech news. I'm then going to talk about the Biogen earnings report that I said I would get to. So there's a few interesting tidbits there. Uh, I have to talk about the COVID-19 story because that's been really blowing up. And I think there are significant implications for the market. And then I'm going to finish up by talking about the latest in the anti-CD47 technologies. And specifically, I'm going to focus on Trillium, but I'm also going to touch on TG Therapeutics. So with that, let's just get right into it. And the first piece of news I had to mention is that Esperion recently heard news that their two compounds were approved by the FDA. The one is just the bempidoic acid pill, which they've named it Nexlitol, and the bempidoic acid azidamide combo pill was also approved called Nexlitzet. So good news for them. They finally reached the finish line and are going to be able to sell these products. Um, The stock did kind of bump up after this news came out, but then with all the news with COVID-19, the stock did sell off, and I think it's hanging around 50 bucks. I still have 10 shares. I'm probably going to sell relatively soon just to, you know, take the profits and uh, look for more opportunities that have a larger chance of of bringing a return on my investment, but uh, great news for them. The next piece of news I wanted to talk about is Iovance, and we heard that they are exploring a potential buyer, according to Bloomberg. We haven't heard too much confirmation since then, but in the past week, we've seen the stock run up quite significantly, and it looks like there's a a good chance that somebody could pick them up. I'm still holding only about 10 shares, unfortunately, but uh, I'm probably going to sell them just because I feel like we've heard a lot of these rumors once in a while, and oftentimes they don't come to fruition, and I'm pretty happy with the profit I've made so far, and given it's only 10 shares, I think I might, again, sell these and, uh, and look for other opportunities that are coming around. The next piece of news I want to talk about is Ameren, and they have been all over the place lately. Uh, we heard that they released some post-trial documents because they're undergoing this litigation right now to maintain exclusivity for their patents. And, you know, I kind of glanced at them. I don't really know what to make of them. Uh, we're still waiting for a judgment to come down, and we'll see that relatively soon, I think. And the negativity around the stock, I think, is going to be uplifted once that goes through. And we should see a return to all-time highs. And I've uh, been adding the stock as it's been down. And it's pretty heavy in my portfolio now, so I still think that they're, uh, they're a good buy here. The next piece of news I wanted to touch on is the latest from the American Society of Retina Specialists. And this is because I have touched on wet AMD in previous videos, so I'm interested in this kind of space. And they announced that Bayview patients, and this is the drug for wet AMD that was recently approved by Novartis, and this ASRS Society issued a warning about 14 cases of retinal vasculitis, with 11 of those being occlusive retinal vasculitis. Now, this can be actually a pretty serious condition that can lead to permanent blindness, so it's uh, it's fair for this society to to issue a warning to people who are considering this therapy, especially given that there are other therapies that don't have this risk that have been approved and in circulation for a while. Now, Novartis stands by Bayoview, and they've said that there's been an estimated 46,000 injections done of Bayoview so far, 
and they did not see that this happened in their phase three trials. They did mention there were 16 cases of uveitis and nine cases of iritis, but they still stand by their own compound and they're saying that they're doing post-market surveillance to see if that's gonna be a problem. But uh, when this news came out, we saw that Novartis stock kind of dipped and Regeneron stock increased quite a bit just in the expectation that more people are gonna stick with ILEA, which is the drug that was approved that's been approved for a lot longer than Bayoview, and there are more frequent injections, but it's obviously more safe. So all of this could be prevented if Regenix Bio's drug, their gene therapy for wet AMD, can hit the market, and then patients would only really need one injection, hopefully, to, uh, to prevent AMD from happening. So that's kind of an interesting thing going on with the AMD space. So to hit the major stories that I want to talk about today, though, we're going to talk about Biogen, the COVID-19 escalation, and then I have here that Gilead announced that they're going to buy the company named 47 for $4.9 billion. And this is worth mentioning because the company I'm going to talk about, which is Trillium, also has an anti-CD47 antibody in hopes of using it for hematologic malignancies, but also potential in solid tumors. So we're gonna talk about that as the feature story, but first thing I wanna talk about is Biogen. So I went through their earnings report and I have touched on Biogen uh, on a number of different occasions in this podcast. And I think it's a really interesting company being in that kind of mid to large cap space. What they announced is that their revenue went up 7% year over year. And amongst all of that, the MS franchise was actually down 4% year over year. But what they did is they included Ocrevus, which is an anti-CD20 compound, but it's also used to treat MS. So they included that in the press release to make the overall year over year revenue increase by 2%. And I think they did this because the franchise itself makes up 60% of Biogen's total revenue. So to show that that franchise is actually increasing is kind of beneficial from a PR standpoint. They also announced that Vumerity was approved for relapsing MS, and we did hear that last year. Uh, Vumerity is similar to Tecfidera, but it has fewer GI side effects, so this was approved and it was shown to be non-inferior to Tecfidera. So this is just adding to its MS franchise as going to be continuing to prevail in being a large revenue generator for Biogen, I believe. We also saw, and I mentioned this last time, that the Tecfidera decision was positive for Biogen, so that compound is going to also be protected, and Biogen's going to maintain its ex exclusivity. So that's good news for that. I don't see the MS franchise decreasing substantially. It's probably only going to increase with the Vumerity approval. There are competitors coming on the space, but given that Biogen is so many MS compounds right now that are pretty effective, I think it's going to be a... a continual driver of revenue for the company. Now, in terms of the upcoming revenue generators, Spinraza is, is one of those that's been in the market for, I think, almost a year now. And the revenue increased 9.3% year over year, which is great. And this franchise makes up 15% of total Biogen revenue. Uh, so that has increased over the past few quarters, I think, as I, as I looked at this. And they did mention here that we expect the rate at which Spinraza revenues will grow will moderate in 2020 compared to 2019, primarily due to a lower rate of new patient starts combined with the impact of loading dose dynamics as patients transition from dosing every four months. So the way the payment system works for Spinraza is that it costs $750,000 for the first year and then subsequent loading years just cost $375,000. 
uh, subsequently. So we see this big boost in revenue when there's a lot of new patient starts, and then it kind of tapers off as patients are just getting that loading dose. So I think that's why they're saying that revenues will moderate because the amount of new patient starts is actually decrease. And I think this is due to Avexis's launch, Avexis and Novartis's launch of their own therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. So I think as that competition continues, the amount of revenue that's generated by Spinraza is going to flatten out. And patients who like Spinraza will probably stay on it. But I think that that increased competition is still going to harm the new patient start. So I don't see this space necessarily increasing too much. Now, other things we need to consider is the repurchase program, and this boosts the stock price pretty substantially. In the last year, they repurchased 24 million shares, and that was a cost of $5.9 billion. And by my calculation, that means in the current repurchase program, they have about 12 million shares to continue to buy, and their net cash is still $3.5 billion. So they still have a lot of cash on hand to buy uh, current shares that are outstanding, which is only going to support the price of the stock moving forward. Another thing they announced is the commercialization rights to ILEA as well as Lucentis. So going back to what I said about the uh, wet AMD space, these two compounds are the current kind of established treatment for wet AMD with Beovue just recently being added. The size of the market for ILEA and Lucentis is $11 billion dollars. But these are going to be biosimilars, and as we know, biosimilars don't generate nearly as much money as the actual patented drug. The current biosimilars that Biogen has, they only make about one-tenth of the revenue of the patented drug. And I have them written down here, you know, uh, Benpoly, which is a biosimilar of Enbrel, it only made about $486 million compared to Enbrel, which had a peak revenue of $6 billion, and this is a similar pattern with the other ones. So we can expect that this is going to support the total revenue of Biogen, but it's not going to be that blockbuster drug necessarily that we would expect with the actual patented drug. And then I have here that biosimilars made up 5% of Biogen's total revenue in 2019. So it's not a significant portion of uh, the business, but it is important in maintaining the, the current revenue that they're getting. So, so I think the overall takeaway from these revenue numbers is that we're going to get stabilization of that with the current regimen. Now, if we look towards the Biogen moves in order to create new revenue streams, I think they've actually made some pretty positive moves, and we're going to see some interesting readouts in the next year or two. So one thing to note is that Biogen is pursuing phase three with band 2401, but it's not really clear what the partnership with ESI is. And ESI is actually paying, I think, most of the costs related to this phase three. And we looked at the phase two data, and I was definitely not impressed with it. I don't think Band 2401 or Aducanumab are going to be viable candidates for Alzheimer's disease. But again, Biogen is moving forward with the submission of the NDA for Aducanumab, and we're likely going to hear about that in the next little while. So the next thing we heard is that Biogen made a deal with Sangamo for their CNS products. So how this is going to work is it's going to be $2.7 billion worth of milestones to be paid to Sangamo if, if they hit all this stuff. And what they want is a stake in the ST501 product, which is for the tau pathies, ST502 for the synucleopathies, and then there's also a neuromuscular target of Sangamo's that Biogen is interested in. Sangamo will be responsible for the GMP manufacturing activities for the initial testing of the first three products, and then Biogen is going to do something further along the cycle. 
I think this is great for Biogen to increase its early stage pipeline, um, which has been largely heavily focused on neurodegenerative diseases. But I think in case they don't see positive outcomes with their current therapies, they have these early stage ones that might have some potential as well. Now, in terms of data coming in 2020, we have a lot of trials. There's a lot of phase two trials for various different things, a lot of uh, neurodegeneration. And then the big one is probably going to be this corridoremia phase three trial, which is an estimated, you know, 6,000 patients in the U.S. So not a huge patient population, but it'll be another asset that's added to this new eye disease program that they're kind of starting to get into. I think there's also a lot of potential in this epilepsy drug, which is a huge patient population. So that would be great if they saw a positive phase two there. And then also for their Parkinson's disease drug, this BIIB054, and that's also a huge patient population. So if they see positivity in either of those, I think moving to phase three with that would be a huge catalyst for the company. Now there's other readouts that are going on in 2021. I think for phase three, there's an ALS readout as well as an acute stroke uh, indication that they're looking for. So those will also be very important because ALS is also a very high patient population in the USA. And then finally, the aducanumab PDUFA date is likely going to be, if it's, if it's early, it might be late 2020, but it's more likely to be 2021. And this is going to be huge if it is approved. I'm definitely bearish on the outcome of this. I think Biogen's kind of pushing their luck when it comes to getting approval for this, but they're going to move forward with it and uh, we'll go from there. But I think overall, I was kind of bearish on the company maybe like a year ago, but since we've seen so many headwinds get taken out, kind of the Tecfidera decision, um, Spinraza is still being uptaken even though they're going to see fewer patient starts, but I think as we get through 2020, Biogen might look like a buy, so I'm keeping them on my watch list, and we're going to do updates as we go throughout the rest of the year, but that's Biogen. We're going to quickly move on to the COVID-19 story, which is you know, the latest inflammatory story on Twitter, that's for sure. Just to give some background, COVID-19 is the disease that occurs when you're infected with SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus that's been spreading around. It started in Wuhan, China, and quickly spread all around the world, and we now have upwards of 100,000 cases across the world with thousands of deaths now. And it's a, it's a complicated story because you have two groups of people some people who think that this is going to be a significant global epidemic, and then everyone else who just kind of says that, oh, it's the flu, look at the death rate, it's not very significant, there's really nothing to worry about. Now, I probably fall somewhere in the middle, which I'm sure is going to make people angry on both sides, but I want to give like a balanced take, and I don't think it's fair for either side to say the other side isn't being honest, because there's parts of both that are worth considering. So I think it's not just the flu. I don't think that narrative is uh, is being necessarily honest. And the reason why people don't think it's just the flu is that it looks like the case fatality rate is around 2%. And that's an order of magnitude higher than the regular seasonal flu. So out of the gate, we know that more people are kind of dying due to this thing. And I realize that the case fatality rate isn't necessarily the the correct way we should be calculating it because the lag of the disease, like if you're diagnosed with the disease today, you're not going to die from it until about four weeks from now. So what we really need to do is look at the number of cases there were four weeks ago and compare that to the death rate today, technically. So leaving that aside, I think the more important thing is the number of people that go in the ICU due to this disease. 
So the issue with that is that the hospital system can get overwhelmed very quickly. So I think the percentage of cases that end up in the ICU is around 5%. And given that the R0 value is anywhere between 2.2 and 6.7, we know that it's very virulent and infectious. So it's easy to transmit. And if it does transmit significantly in the United States, the number of ICU beds that currently exists is around 100,000. And given the 5% of cases need an ICU bed, we can see very quickly that the hospital system can get overwhelmed. And what happens then is kind of two things. One is that the people who need a hospital bed for things unrelated to COVID-19 are not going to get adequate care. And then the COVID-19 cases are going to be much more deadly because they're not going to get adequate care from the hospital system. So I think it's worth considering that that case is possible. So things that make the transmission complicated as well is that there's been cases of asymptomatic transmission of up to 27 days before symptoms occur. Now, I've been looking at the CDC website and the WHO, and they say that they quarantine people for only 14 days. But given that there's evidence that, you know, this isn't adequate necessarily, the transmission of this could happen much more significantly than we think it can. We've also seen that there's traces of viral shedding that occur after symptoms have gone away. And this has been seen in other viruses as well. So it looks like the level of transmission that can happen is actually going to be pretty high. And that might not be being taken into account of either. And then finally, the other thing to be concerned about is this antibody-dependent enhancement. And this is concerned because reinfection could actually be deadly. We've seen this with dengue virus, and, you know, it hasn't been confirmed yet. And we've only seen these conspiracy videos that show people falling. But, you know, because we don't fully understand the biology of this virus, I think it's worth being cautious, and we should err on the side of caution given that. And then I also wanted to mention that as this virus is mutating and escalating, we're seeing that um, certain countries are being hit with this harder than others. And we've noticed that in Iran and Italy in particular, the fatality seems to be a lot higher and it's spreading a lot quicker. So we've also seen papers come out where there's like an L-type, which is more prevalent now versus an S-type. So as we learn more about the virus, I think we're going to start to figure out just how serious it is. Now, specifically in reference to the United States, I'm, uh, I'm pretty disappointed in the CDC's response to this virus. They have been utterly negligent when it comes to the amount of testing they should be doing. And for those who don't know, they originally had an issue with a reagent in the test kits. And then when they finally got that going in early February, they were basically kind of turning people away when they had all the symptoms and they wanted to be tested. They were only testing people who were actually in China and if you were not in China and you had all these symptoms, they would just send you away. So one of the benefits of that is that the case fatality rate might be inflated because fewer people have been tested. And obviously, if you're testing more, you're going to come up with more cases. And the website on the CDC was originally showing the number of tests that they were doing. And it was 500 for a really long time. And then they just removed that number from the, from the website so people couldn't even look and see how many people they were testing. And then I think a couple days ago, there was a report from The Atlantic showing that the CDC has now tested around 2,000 people. And just to compare this with South Korea, who's tested over 100,000 people, and they have a system such that you can just drive through, get a swab in the mouth, and then you can get a test right there. So you don't actually have to physically go to a hospital where you're risking other people who are involved. So I think the CDC has completely dropped the ball. 
I personally think that there's a number of clusters of cases in the United States who we just don't know of yet because the testing has been so inadequate. So I think as we roll out the test more and more, and we've heard recently that I think the CDC is going to have the capacity to test upwards of a million people, which is great, then we're finally going to know what the United States is looking at. Because I think now the number of deaths in the country standing around 20, the United States that is, and they're largely centered around Washington State. But you know, people have been traveling all over the country for the last month, and I think that this thing has been spreading unknowingly. So we'll see how that shakes out. I am cautiously optimistic. I think we can get this under control, and we really need to know how many te- how many people have the disease before we can really assess the, the dangers associated with it. And just one more thing I'm going to mention about this is that people do also seem less concerned because it seems to only be fatal for elderly patients, but uh, let's be honest it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be limiting our potential exposure. I'm sure everybody here has family members who are in that age range of 50 or 16 above. And if you interact with them and you unknowingly have the virus, you know, putting them at a significant risk like that is definitely something to be avoided. So keep that in mind. Do your best. I don't even want to touch the mask story, which has been such another disappointment in, uh, in this whole fiasco. But I'm going to leave it there. We're going to have to definitely follow this story as we go because it is going to have significant economic impacts. So let's get to the feature story of today, which is Trillium Therapeutics. And they closed on Friday at $7.22 a share. And just to give some context, they were trading at $1.49 on January 1st, 2020. So a huge increase in valuation over the last couple months. They recently did a raise of $117 million dollars putting their total share count at $74.97 million, giving them a market cap of $541 million. So what this company is doing is they're investigating immuno-oncology target CD47. And this is a molecule that's expressed in the cell surface, and it's ubiquitously expressed on human cells. And what it does is it prevents macrophages from phagocytosing the endogenous cells of your body, which is very important. Now, tumor cells happen to hijack the system and overexpress it on their surface, and this allows them to hide from macrophages. Trillium has two molecules that they're investigating, TTI621, which is the SIRP-alpha, which is bound to an IgG1, and SIRP-alpha binds with high affinity to CD47, and then they've tethered this molecule to IgG1, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. And then they have another compound, TTI622, and this is the same uh, active receptor, but instead of IgG1, it's IgG4. And this is just the FC region of an antibody, and I'll talk about that as well a little bit later, and this is in phase 1a. So they've originally shown success with these compounds in intratumoral injections, but they've shifted their focus to hematologic malignancies, specifically the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which includes the cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So we're going to talk about all of that. And I have a cute little picture here that I took from their website showing that the do not eat signal that's expressed by the tumor cell, which is CD45, can be blocked by the use of this antibody, allowing a macrophage to eat the tumor cell, which is the whole point of it. So before I get too in-depth in that, I did want to touch on immuno-oncology as a field as a whole, because... This is kind of a shift of the typical immuno-oncology that we hear about related to the checkpoint inhibitors. So 
the the reason why immuno-oncology exists is because tumor cells are able to avoid detection by the host immune system through expression of various different cell surface receptors and this has been termed negative immune regulation so these tumor cells get the ability to express receptors that force immune cells to not attack them. And what we can do is use a wide variety of different technology to avoid that and allow the endogenous immune system to work properly. And I've touched on a number of different of these therapies throughout this podcast, but today we're specifically focusing on antibody therapy. But things like CAR-T and different cell therapies exist to hijack the system back to where it should be. And then there's also potential use of cytokine therapy as well. But when it comes to antibodies in particular, we've seen great success with the anti-CTLA-4 as well as the anti-PD-1. And these are compounds that are known as Yervoy, Updevo, Keytruda, and they've seen major breakthroughs in advanced melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, renal cell carcinoma, bladder cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, etc. And what these therapies do is they bind to either CTLA or PD-1 and it allows the endogenous T cells to destroy cancer cells that have overexpression of the complementary of that receptor, thus preventing T cells from working. So the antibody comes in and allows the T cells to work properly. Another type of therapy is this anti-CD20, and these have been around for a while, compounds called rituximab or ofatumumab, and these have significant effects on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or chronic lymphocytic leukemia, Anything that has a B-cell target that's been malignant allows the endogenous immune system to attack these B-cells that are malignantly affecting the patient. So what Trillium is doing is they're, instead of targeting PD-1, CD-20, or CTLA-4, they're targeting CD-47, which is then going to allow macrophages to come in and detect cancer cells and hopefully kill them. So when it comes to the phase one studies of TTI-621, so far to date they've dosed 200 patients by December of 2019. They originally using a low dose of 0.2 mg per kilogram, and they picked this dose because patients were starting to get thrombocytopenia, which is a significant reduction in platelets. But they found that this condition was only transient, which meant that the platelets eventually come back to normal levels after they're, they've been treated, and it wasn't associated with significant bleeding events. So as long as patients are careful when they know that they have this thrombocytopenia, and then given that it does come back, the review board allowed them to increase the dose of the compound to try 1.4 mg per kilogram, you know, potentially allowing the drug to be more effective and there being more cases of response rates. So the company is still trying to figure out the maximally tolerated dose, which is very important because they're going to use that for their future trials. And the dose that they used for this data that I'm going to show right here was up to 0.5 mg per kilogram. So keep in mind that they're going to be able to increase this dose and potentially get more response rate, even though it could also lead to more side effects that come through. So we're going to touch on that as well in a second. Uh, one other thing to note is that the inclusion criteria for these patients are relapse or refractory following at least two prior systemic therapeutic attempts. Now, only one for PTCL, but two for the other ones. So that means that these patients are pretty heavily pre-treated. So when it came to the objective response rate, it was 29% for DLBCL, 19% for CTCL, and then 18% for PTCL, which is quite good. And these are done as a monotherapy. And so far, this compound is the only one, the only CD47 agent to show complete responses with a monotherapy. So that's very exciting. In terms of side effects, there were some that are similar to other types of antibody therapies. 
the thrombocytopenia was an issue, but because it was transient, they they allowed the increased dose to happen, but the most common ones are the infusion-related reactions as well as chills and fatigue, but overall it was well-tolerated. Now, when it comes to analyzing the potential market of this kind of compound, the second-line or third-line non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patient population is probably going to be the first indication. And when I looked into it, there's about 700,000 patients, and about 40% of those fail the first-line therapy. So they would be eligible for second- or third-line therapy, of which Trillium Therapeutics' as compound could come in. Now, this isn't going to be a huge amount of revenue that comes in. I think the other checkpoint inhibitors retailed for about $120,000. So you can do the math there and, and see what kind of revenue could be generated by this. But I really think that the excitement surrounding the anti-CD47 therapy is the potential in solid tumors. And I found a paper here that said that enhanced expression of CD47 has also been seen in various malignancies, including solid tumors such as breast, colon, hepatocellular carcinoma, which is liver, and melanoma. So the potential for CD47 isn't just in the blood cancers, but also solid tumors. And if they can have an impact there, I think this drug could be a gigantic blockbuster. And I wrote here that Keytruda peak cells are estimated to be 16 billion by 2025, and they have indications in melanoma, lung cancer, head and neck cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and stomach cancer. So Keytruda still isn't being treated for things like colon cancer, nor is it being treated for breast cancer. So if anti-CD47 can step in where Keytruda is not being used right now, this drug could, you know, could be on par with Keytruda. So given that, if 661, if 621 is able to show efficacy in solid tumors, the valuation of this company should be much closer to the buyout price of what 47 got, which is you know, around 4 or $5 billion, but I put here conservatively around $3 billion. And right now it's trading at around $500 million. So that's kind of where my valuation is at and why I think Trillium is a buy even right here, and even though it's seen that huge run-up. Now, another thing to consider is that Trillium does face competition. There are many other companies using anti-CD47 type therapies. Uh, just to mention a few, 47, which was recently acquired by Gilead, ALX Oncology, Celgene, Arch Oncology, TG Therapeutics, Service Oncology, and many more. Now, Trillium, which differentiates them from all these other companies, is that it's the only one to show complete responses with monotherapy, and also it's probably a best-in-class in terms of the overall response rate that it gets. The other thing that should be noted is that there's minimal red blood cell binding, and that's important for a number of different reasons. One is that when red blood cells are binding to your antibody, it's not really able to function properly. So what that means is you need to have a higher dose for patients, and that higher dose might not be as efficacious as a lower dose of the uh, 621 compound that Trillium has. So they've actually seen this in the clinic. So with the other compounds that are targeting CD47, 47 was able to see a 5% overall response rate in solid tumors and lymphomas, and then they also saw a 10% overall response rate in AML and MDS. And this is at a significantly higher dose than what's being given by Trillium. So Trillium has a range of 18% to 29% overall response rate in different lymphomas. And so the next best one is that data from 47, which is showing, you know, between 5 to 10% in overall response rate. And then there's other ones. The ALX Oncology saw a 0% response rate in solid tumors, unfortunately. And then the Celgene compound and the Service Oncology 
compound didn't really show success. So I think Trillium might have a best in class here along with the TG Therapeutics' compound. 47 also seems to have a, a comparable compound here, but because they were recently acquired, they don't really pose a, a trading opportunity anymore. So the catalyst we want to look into is updates on the dose escalation for phase one of TTI 621, and that's going to be due in mid-2020. I didn't talk about the 622 compound, and the reason for that is the only difference is in the FC region, the fragment crystallizable region, and I didn't really talk about the, the nature of the antibody, but basically that portion of the antibody allows the macrophage to bind and switching out that IgG1 for IgG4 uh, might do better, it might do worse, but I think it's going to be effective and it'll just be the character of which it's effective is going to be different. So we're going to see the dose escalation in cohort 5 is what they're dosing now and that update's going to come in mid-2020. The company has current assets of 37.4 million and this is based off of Q3 and they recently raised 116 million. So their cash is going to be good for a while now. They have an operating expenditure of around $10 million per quarter, and this is going to give them around eight to nine quarters from what I estimate before they need to do another raise. And then we haven't heard the 2019 earnings yet, so that's still got to come, and I think the estimate I saw on like Zach's or whatever is on March 9th, but I'm going to be keeping my eye out because I want to see how much they did spend in 2019 and to see whether or not there's other updates. Now, I did want to compare this to TG Therapeutics, and they have a market cap of $132 billion. They have current assets of $261 million, and the company says that this is enough to fund them well into 2021. Now, their quarterly R&D spend is significantly higher than Trillium at $41 million. So you can kind of do the math and see that they are going to have to raise probably into 2021. Um, they have significantly more assets than Trillium, and their focus has been on this anti-CD20 antibodies. And as we know, there are already a ton of anti-CD20 antibodies approved. Rituximab has been on the market for a while. But they also have early candidates of BTK inhibitors as well as their CD47, CD19 bispecific antibody. So this is the one that's going to be a competitor for Trillium. And I think that because this molecule also has minimal red blood cell binding, that it does kind of pose a threat to Trillium, even though we've seen less data to date. So as TG continues their clinical trials, we could see that this CD47, CD19 becomes a threat to Trillium, but right now I do see Trillium as kind of the leader of the pack. The catalysts for TG therapeutics are phase 3 for MS, as well as phase 3 interim data for CLL and NHL, and that's going to happen in Q2 of 2020. And there has been some drama surrounding their CLL trial. They've pushed the date back multiple times. And they're looking now at a different endpoint. I think it's progression-free survival now. So I'm not sure how that's going to play out for the company. But I think the MS trial, if that shows positivity, is going to be a huge boom for the company. I don't think I'm going to take a position in TGTX. I am going to buy Trillium if there is ever a dip in the stock. They have had a pretty skyward trajectory so far. But I am going to take a position and add them probably this week. And keep an eye out on my Twitter. You can follow me at Matthew Lepore on Twitter, and I'll let you know whenever I make a move, so keep that in mind. That's kind of how I see the company and, uh, and what I like about them. So I think the mid-2020 updates are going to be interesting, and we should see some positive data there. So with that, I think things to be mindful of. Obviously, the stock market took a significant hit due to the COVID-19 news headlines, and what I believe is going to happen is that the headlines in the United States are only going to get worse. 
We're going to hear things of quarantines, which we've already seen in Washington state. We're going to hear things about hospitals being overextended. And we're also going to see increases in cases as well as deaths. So once the CDC rolls out these testing kits properly, we're going to start to get a sense of really how widespread this thing is and whether or not the whole economy is going to have to go into quarantine. You know, how possible is that? I don't know, but I think it's worth putting on some shorts just in case something happens. Uh, the other thing you want to look out for are leading economic indicators to see the virus's impact. So we've already seen the price of oil completely plummet, which is a good indicator of world economic productivity. But specifically for the U.S., looking at things like initial jobless claims as well as housing starts is a good kind of leading indicator for the economy. And then also looking at things like credit spreads, the HYIG bond spread is a, is a good indicator of kind of the health of the economy. And then just another indicator of what's going on, the Global Business Travel Association said that global travel spending could fall by over 37% this year, costing the industry $46.6 billion a month. So this is significant economic damage that's already being seen by the virus. And, you know, we still don't have an accurate read on how many cases are in the U.S. So I think it's worth being cautious moving forward. Now, having said that, a lot of biotechs are seeing positive news with any one of the vaccine companies who are putting those kinds of assets in their pipeline. One in particular is Gilead that's done very well, but there's also some smaller biotechs that are also seeing some uh, good news. So I think that's kind of keeping the XBI afloat. But given that the whole economic system could be impacted by this, I think it's worth being mindful of. So given that, and I know this is a long episode, I'm just going to do a quick portfolio rundown. Overall, I am down 10% on the year, but I did take an additional position in uh, Axome Therapeutics. I think that their treatment-resistant depression readout is going to be a significant mover for the stock. Um, I also took a position in Cassava Sciences. They dipped down to 554, and I thought that was a good risk-reward ratio to buy into. I did also add Amarin. I don't know why I picked 28 shares to buy. I thought I hit 25, but uh, I added them, and I'm down significantly on the position. But like I said the positive news that we should hear in terms of the litigation is going to increase the stock substantially. So I'm pretty much in line with the Dow Jones for the year, but everything took a major hit in the last three weeks. And we also saw that volatility increased significantly in everything, including the XBI. That volatility has retracted, and it was kind of a weird thing. We saw a huge spike in the SPX in the last like 15 minutes of the market close on Friday. So uh, it's anyone's guess how futures are going to open on Sunday, but I'm uh, definitely going to be watching. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. And again, thank you everybody so much for all of your support. Uh, I love the emails I've been getting from everyone and definitely leave me a comment or something on Twitter. And you can follow me there at Matthew Laporte. You can also email me at uh, MatthewLaporte at gmail.com. And with that, we're going to stop there. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time.